1: so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's November 22nd, 1963. A pretty famous day in American history. And Carlos Marcello is sitting in court. Marcello has climbed the ranks of the New Orleans Mafia to become not only the boss of the family, but one of the most powerful and wealthy mob figures in the country. He's built up his wealth and power through a gambling empire that dominates New Orleans underworld. And New Orleans, if you've never been, it has a pretty damn big underworld. In fact, Marcelo's gotten so big, he's reached the highest of the heights in the National Mafia Syndicate, partnering in illegal casinos with legendary mob figures Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello. The times, though, they are a-changing. See, the mob had the run of the country for decades. Jagger Hoover and the FBI, they refused to even admit that there was a mafia. But in the late 50s, after the bust-up in Appalachia, which was a huge meetup of mafia bosses from around the country, the feds started getting serious. The Joe Velocci hearings in the early 1960s, when a mob informant testifies in front of the Senate about the existence of the mob and how powerful it is, this lights a firestorm. And at the top of that firestorm is Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and his brother, President John F. Kennedy. Even though the mob may very well have helped JFK get elected by helping him win Illinois, the Kennedy brothers have sworn to take down all the illegal mafias and their labor rackets. Bobby's even made New Orleans mobster Carlos Marcello one of his top public enemies. That's what happens when you get too big. But on this day, in late November 1963, Marcello is sitting in court fighting a deportation case. A couple of years earlier, Bobby Kennedy had federal agents essentially kidnap Marcello, throw him on a plane, and drop him off in Guatemala. But he found his way back to town and then found his way back to the courthouse. On this particular day though, he's acquitted. And when he leaves the courthouse, he's told the shocking news. The president has just been assassinated. Over the next several decades, countless questions will arise in the Kennedy assassination about underworld involvement in the hit. Committees will be held, conspiracies will fly, and one name will come up time and time again. Carlos Marcello. This is the Underworld Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Underworld Podcast, where two journalists, myself, Danny Gold, and Sean Williams, we've reported all over the world, and you know, whatever, yada yada yada, who cares, Sean, how is your will to live these days? (laughs) Better than yours by the sound of it, I mean, I definitely
2: want to live, but uh, I'm about to plan a trip to a tropical island, armed compound, uh, with no connection to the internet or anyone else, so I guess
1: that's, uh, I don't know if that's living or not, but it's all fun, isn't it? Oh, stop hyping up the danger like I'm some woman you met in a bar. I can see right <laughs> through you. It'll be fine. It works. You'll be fine. Maybe you'll get your wallet stolen. We'll have a good story for the podcast.
2: No, no. I was going to say something about sticking a flak jacket picture on Tinder, but yeah, that's probably...
1: Oh, yeah. No, I always do that. But anyway, as always, bonus episodes, which are like mini regular episodes or interviews, go up every week or so, and you can get those on iTunes subscriptions or on patreon.com slash The Underworld for the price of a cup of coffee, actually lower than the price of a cup of coffee if you live in, in New York, but uh, what else? Anything? <laughs> Bueller? Sean. Yeah, I mean
2: we've got that five-part coming up on the Arab-Israeli conflict, so uh, listeners can uh, look out for that one. That's
1: going to be pretty cool. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah, definitely email Sean, your opinions on all that stuff, and he's going to pick um, the best emails to read.: so, Yeah uh, that's Williams at, uh, at, at uh, what is it? Prodigy.net.
2: Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, fire io. Yeah.
1: So this is a bit of a of a different episode. We try really not to do the American mob stories because I feel like they've been done to death, and there's like half a dozen podcasts that do those. But in this case, we are going to make an exception because there hasn't been as much on this guy compared to say, you know, Lucky Luciano or Gotti and those people. And also, we want to capitalize on uh, all the sort of conspiracy money that goes around and get a boost. So you know, this <laughs> that kind of figures in here. And then also. Uh, My brother Noah actually did a lot of ghostwriting here because I was in Chicago on a business trip learning how to secure loans from Teamster pension funds.
2: Yeah, I mean, can we first get some sorted details from your trip to Chicago, like dive bars, all that kind of stuff before we kick off?
1: I don't know. There aren't uh, you know that, that project will be out early next year. There aren't there's not that many story details. It is organized crime stuff, but it's actually a pretty tragic story. But we'll we'll get around to that when it when it gets around.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I wrong in thinking that New Orleans was kind of one of the birthplaces of the mob. I remember reading something about the Sicilian Mafia, right? The Black Hand and extortionists in the 1800s. I think that's right. Uh, but like yeah, I've actually been watching Your Honor the past couple of weeks. It's a New Orleans mob show, great acting, pretty gigantic plot holes, but yeah, I recommend Brian Cranston basically playing Walter White. It's good.
1: Yeah, I actually I watched the was it two seasons of that? It was pretty good. Yeah. 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 uh kind of tails off in the end but you know I know black hand was active there and there was a sicilian population I don't think it's the birthplace of the mafia in America I could be wrong about that I didn't really look into it what this episode but uh definitely had a very active mafia and you know New Orleans is wild so there was always yeah. vice and underground stuff there and money to be made Still wild. gambling you know gambling prostitution I feel like it was pretty much known for that for for decades even even before recent times but um Yeah, here we go. Caledro Minacore, whose name gets Americanized to Carlos Marcelo, He arrives in the U.S. Uh, He was born in Tunisia in 1910 to Sicilian parents. But they come to the U.S. the next year as illegal immigrants and settle in New Orleans, where his father gets a farm. And as soon as Marcelo becomes old enough to use a horse and cart, he delivers the family vegetables to the New Orleans French market, where... Young Marcello runs into the city's criminal elements for the first time. And um, you know, if you've ever been to uh to farmers markets, they are breeding ground for all sorts of criminals and scams. It's like $9 for a dozen eggs. Like are you fucking kidding me? $14 for a pound of free-range chicken, which is just completely it's it, it's it is criminal.
2: <laughs> Dale, can you insert the Seinfeld baseline there? Dude, it's it's insane
1: what you they, people think they can get away with at farmers markets. But yes. Yeah. I feel like every old school mafia movie, uh, it's like push carts and everything, right? Like that's how they start off in, in the Lower East Side. Young Marcelo, he's bartering, he's making deals with the mob who control the markets to sell the goods, and New Orleans, dating, like we said, way back when, had a pretty strong criminal culture. Bribery and political corruption were not only common, they were basically part of the system. So having to deal with the mob dudes in the market, it's just part of the game, and Marcelo, he fits right in. In 1928, an 18-year-old Marcelo moves away from home and rents a room in the French Quarter, which also has a reputation as a breeding ground for criminals and it's also where Sean first got arrested for public nudity. You know, if you want to tell that story, Sean.
2: Yeah, I mean, technically it was indecency. There are, like, some details to line out there, but uh, we can get to that further down the show, I reckon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think your major mistake was being so close to a school, but uh, there, Marcelo gets involved with petty crime, mostly small-time burglaries. The following year, him and three buddies, they take down a bank in a robbery and they steal seven grand. And I, you know, I haven't looked up what the inflation numbers are, but it is a lot more valuable than uh, than seven grand now. And it's probably more money than uh, than you have. So they take the money <laughs> back to Marcelo's dad's farmhouse, and acting on a tip, the cops come there. They find all the money. For some reason though, the bank is just happy to have the money back, and they decide not to press charges. Which I don't know, okay. incredibly weird, but it's nineteen twenty, so I guess you know anything goes. A few months later. He robs a grocery store. This time he winds up behind bars and is sentenced to nine to 14 years, which I mean, I, between that and the bank robbery situation, it doesn't yeah. make much sense to me. His sentence is commuted. He only serves five years. The governor does a favor for a politician on behalf of his parents, who by then have like a pretty thriving business. After this incident, he goes back to work for his father. He lives at home, saves up enough money to buy a rundown bar. You know, every, every man who has to move back in with their parents and, uh, and get a job and, and sort of live under their roof. That's that's the dream, right? Just buying a rundown bar, making it your business. He gets to live that dream, and then he does what everyone who still lives with their parents does too, which is sell weed out of that bar, <laughs> which, you know, back then, huge deal. It was like, I don't know, selling fentanyl is now risk-wise and penalty-wise, I think. But to be allowed to operate, Marcelo bribes a whole host of politicians and local officials And this is where he really learns the dark arts of corruption, bribery, and political connections that are going to serve him really well throughout his career. He also pays the local mob guy who works for the New Orleans boss at the time, Silvestro Carollo, aka Silver Dollar Sam, which, you know, top nickname right there. That local mob dude, he takes a real liking to Marcelo. And in turn, Marcelo starts helping out with the other mob business. By the age of 26, he officially joins... Corolo's that Silver Dollar Sam, his mafia organization.
2: Yeah, I felt like we stepped directly into a Scorsese movie here. Also, that Silver Dollar Sam is awesome. Uh, we're, next week, we're going to have a few more amazing names. It's like a Premier League roll call of them. So, uh, yeah, look out for that one. But this is cool. I like it a lot.
1: It reminds me more of like... um. What's the Sergio Leone one, like Once Upon a Time in America? Just, oh, yeah. Like, it kind of has that Western feel, too. You know, and, and push things lower and... side in the 1920s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a wild movie. Wild long movie, too. With Carlos's new mob connections, he works on expanding his new pinball and vending machine company. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast. It actually plays a role in one of the other productions on I'm working on right now. Vending machines, pinball machines, jukeboxes, they were all. A huge mob racket for decades going back to, like, I don't know, the 40s or 50s, even 30s, I guess. Any coin operating machine like that, um, you know, that was all cash, it was passive income, hard for the IRS to get tight numbers on it. In a lot of cities, vending machines were a completely mob controlled situation. Cigarettes, I think, were often said to be the best because you could steal them, you know, and they have a high price and there's high taxes on them. Then you just put them in the machines, load them up, and you're just making a killing. And Usually, they couldn't tell if it was stolen cigarettes being in some bar's vending machine, right? Organized crime guys, they always make sure their vending machines too are the ones put in all the bars, restaurants, and nightclubs, you know, whatever the usual strong-arm tactics were, basically, use our machines or we'll blow up your restaurant. That way, they could set the rates that the the owner of the bar or restaurant, whatever it is, takes out of their cut. And, uh, you know, they did not give good rates, but you really couldn't go against them. And that's exactly what Marcelo does. And his little empire starts expanding.
2: Yeah, weirdly enough, the Patreon bonus that's going up what, today, tomorrow, is about a guy who did exactly this in nineties Baltimore. So uh, plus so change or whatever the French say. I don't really know what that phrase is.
1: Yeah, it wasn't a thing that went away. I guess there's less coin operated machinery now, and especially like in bars. But um But it still happens. It's just a, now, it's just a good yeah, it's a good business in general. But no, a lot of them I feel like take credit cards, right? So, I feel like that kind of tampers it down a bit. But.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you, if you you, you're you're the one that spends running. your nights on the poker machine. So, I, I don't really know that world so much these days.
1: Yeah, I think with, with gambling, that is a big part of it. Remember, what's the, um, that was a big thing in Berlin, right? Or am I just thinking that yeah, this yeah, yeah. was real? Yeah, yeah, not It's the shisha yeah. bars
2: and the pokies and all that kind of stuff. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Germany doesn't, but Germany no, still like uses ta- uh, cash. So, they're a little bit behind the world for a lot of stuff.
1: Well, the gambling machines too, right? I think those are, even if those aren't credit, they're, uh, they're you know, mob gambling yeah. that goes oh, together. sure. So back in New York at this time, the new mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, you know, the airport's named after him, vows to crack down on Mafia Kingpin's gambling operations in that city. So this is in the mid-30s. And his first target is the legendary Mafia boss, Frank Costello. He even has a press conference where he smashes up on a Costello slot machines in front of the media, which, you know, I love those old school politician <laughs> press conferences where they just do wild stuff. I haven't seen a lot of those in, in a while, you know, like stepping on a stepping on vials of crack and stuff. I really thought I
2: feel like that's an Eric Adams move.
1: Yeah, I feel like he, you know, lighting something on fire, you gotta get those- dumping up a whole bunch of powdered fentanyl into like a... Uh, I don't know, the toilet. It just seems like something that he would go for, and I'm sad that he's not doing it.
2: I feel like an Eric Adams, like Saudi police, like tie up would be a pretty cool promo video.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, after, after he's not there anymore, he'll definitely be over there posing and stuff with those <laughs> guys. Dude's doing something weird. What an incredible weirdo. Costello, he's looking to get something going out of town away from all the heat, and he eyes New Orleans as the new location for a slot operation. But he has to deal with Marcelo because, you know, that's his racket. So Marcelo, he's able to broker a deal between the Louisiana mob bosses and the New York mob bosses to share the gambling profits. And this is kind of a big deal for Marcelo because now he's in good with like the really big guys in New York who operated on a national level. In 1938, he gets caught selling 23 pounds of weed to an undercover cop, which at the time was the biggest pop bust in New Orleans history, which, what? you know, Kind of sounds like amateur numbers now, but back then, yeah, dude, weed was a, a big deal back then. Like to sell yeah. at all, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't an easy thing. Like people did life sentences for far less than that, even into like the sixties and 70s, probably eighties too and nineties. Um, but yeah, he gets off easy. He actually only spends a year behind bars thanks to all of his political connections. And then the early nineteen forties, nineteen forty-two, outbreak of the U.S. getting involved in World War II. A lot of Marcello's sort of native-born mafia contemporaries, they get drafted for the war effort, but not him because he wasn't a citizen. So while all those guys are off fighting, he moves in and takes over some of their rackets and starts you know, really building up his empire. At this point, he operates a number of bars and restaurants on Bourbon Street and around the city, and he also has a trucking business. So New Orleans is also a major place for troops to be passing through during World War II. Since the New Orleans port, was like a big point for, for the troops to pass through. It's where they where it was an embarkation point, and it's also a big supply port. So you have, you know, tons of goods passing through, all manners of vice for the troops: gambling, women, booze, drugs, all that, and that leads to really big earnings from Marcelo. Yeah, I
2: guess if you're going to spend three months staring down kamikaze pilots near Guam or something, you're going to want to smoke. Although, actually, would they have been going out? East to the Atlantic, so maybe it's U-boats off the Channel Islands, which is which is way worse. I'd want more of the smoke if I was going to do that, but yeah, either way, money.
1: What if I told you that there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? I think that's a pretty creepy thing, but what if I told you that's exactly what's happening every time you go online? Your internet provider, like AT&T or Verizon... They're allowed to store logs of every website you've ever visited. Every website. And can legally sell this data to anyone. That's why I always use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. And unlike a lot of other VPNs, they don't store any of that data. They use something called Trusted Server Technology, they were the first major VPN provider to engineer all of their VPN servers to run on RAM only, which makes it impossible for them to store any data, including logs of any ExpressVPN customer. So for me, when I'm doing research for an episode, you know, we're looking into really shady stuff. It's kind of better that uh, that we're not storing that data that no one can see that. And I know for Sean in his personal life, he's uh, you know, he's visiting certain certain streaming websites and other websites that. You know he wouldn't like other people to know that he goes on. So both of us, we use ExpressVPN to keep what we want to keep private, private and secure. Stop letting people keep logs of what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com/underworld right now and find out how you can get three months free. That's expressvpn.com/underworld. Expressvpn.com/underworld to learn more. I don't know. You know, I just rewatched The Pacific, which is incredible, and doesn't get uh, nearly enough credit, I think, because Band of Brothers is also really, really good. Yeah. But um, I feel like, I don't know where they, they leave from. Is it New Orleans? I'm not even sure. It might be somewhere in the south, but uh, anyway, great series. 1944, at the age of 35, Carlos reaches his new heights when he's offered a partnership in an illegal casino in Jefferson Parish, which I think is technically like the greater New Orleans area. He's offered the partnership by Frank Costello, who we mentioned earlier, and Meyer Lansky. And this is like being called up to the Yankees from AAA, but when the Yankees were were actually good. <laughs> so Costello and Lansky, they're like the elite of the elite of the USA mafia world. Costello, Costello, he sits on the mafia commission, the syndicate, and he's the head of one of the five families. I think it was the Genovese family that he was on top, or it was later called the Genovese family. And Lansky, he was partners with Costello and Lucky Luciano. He had Bugsy Siegel by his side, and he's kind of seen as one of the architects of the modern mafia as we know it today. He occasionally attends commission meetings as well, even though you know he wasn't technically on it since he wasn't Italian; he was Jewish. This is a very big deal to be in a partnership with these two legendary mafia guys. And while this was an illegal casino, it wasn't like underground and like uh, you know like or like above. Some, some like loft in a building, right? It's pretty public and the mayor and police knew about it and they tolerated it. Carlos was greasing the palms of everyone, anyone that was in New Orleans that could even stand in their way. So the casino itself turns into a major moneymaker and the top echelons of the national mob, they're very impressed with Marcelo. In 1947, the reigning mob boss in New Orleans, Silver Dollar Sam, he calls a meeting of the minds of the top New Orleans mobsters to anoint a successor. He's about to get deported back to Sicily since he, like Marcello, was not legal, which I don't know. I feel like that seemed to happen a lot. Like I've heard stories of mobsters back then just being deported all the time way back when.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess it hasn't happened there for a while, but Australia did it a few years ago in New Zealand. Really, really controversial. I think we touched on it in the show we did about the Kiwi biker gangs, but uh I'm going to try and follow up and do some in-person reporting on that soon. Pretty pretty crazy, just deporting a bunch of crazy, violent bikers to New Zealand, which
1: is cool. So
2: uh, yeah, we'll do a show on that.
1: Yeah, find them in in, in your hometown. But uh, yeah, the US did that in the 90s too with, um, with a lot of Salvadoran, like MS-13. That's kind of how MS-13 spread yeah, and got yeah. really big in El Salvador because a lot of them got deported in the 90s and then they went back to El Salvador, which was a post-Civil War country with like no state institutions that were functioning well, and they just kind of like started taking over and, uh, and transferring their sort of gang mentality and knowledge and structures into that country when they really didn't know how to combat it. Marcello, though, he's about to take over, because Silver Dollar Sam is sent back to Sicily. And while a few of the other gangsters want Sam's son to be the successor, Marcello gets the backing of the commission in no small part due to his relationship with Costello and Lansky, and he becomes the new mob boss of New Orleans. Marcelo also gets a nickname at this time. They call him the little man because he was only five feet tall. Which probably seems like the kind of thing that people didn't call him to his face. But Marcello <laughs> was said to be pretty, uh, pretty under control. So maybe they did. I don't know. Marcelo at this point has also really smartened up. And he's learned from the mistakes of other mobsters. He tries to avoid the limelight. You know, he kind of sticks to himself. He operates out of a small rundown tavern in Jefferson Parish. And he tries to do everything he can to keep himself out of the headlines, even though he's becoming one of the most powerful and wealthiest gangsters in the game across the U.S. He also continues the New Orleans family's longstanding tradition of being somewhat independent from the national mob scene, you know, in the Northeast and Chicago. And he requires all the outside mafiosos to get permission before even visiting Louisiana, which, I don't know, the sources on Marcelo seem to make this into a big deal, but I feel like that was pretty standard practice even back then for any gangster coming from out of town hoping to operate in a territory where there already was active organized crime. The 1950s is a big turning point for the mafia as a whole in the US. I think we covered that in the cold open a little bit, but the feds are really starting to get involved and actually doing stuff now. It wasn't like today, like the mafia's existence it wasn't even a really known thing to the average American. I mean, we had Capone and, Bo- and you know stuff in, in Atlantic City and all that, but this wasn't like a widespread thing that people had knowledge of. And this is where we start seeing a lot more of these public committees we used to see back in the day where they would call these mobsters to testify. A senator from Tennessee has one of these hearings and calls in Marcello, who gives the Fifth Amendment 152 times and even refuses to give his age or his marital status. He actually gets convicted of contempt of Congress, but he wins on appeal, However, this brings Marcelo's business into the public view, and he finally starts to receive some attention from the media, and then, of course, law enforcement. At the end of this particular committee, the senator recommends that Marcelo be deported and deportation proceedings begin, but Marcelo has a team of highly skilled lawyers fighting it. And the way the law worked back then, and maybe now, I've, I have no idea, is that you could just keep filing motions to stay deportations over and over and over again to stall them. Soon after that, we get the McCallum committee. Which RFK was the chief counsel of, and this is in 1957, and they're really focused on the labor racketeer aspect of organized crime. I think we actually got into the history of how the mob got involved in that in the Murder Inc. episode.
2: Yeah, um, this is—I mean, this is sounding like the plot of On the Waterfront, right? Which is one of the greatest movies of all time. Just here, my controversial movie hot take, guys. But yeah, we did get into it back then. It was pretty crazy,
1: right? They started as like leg breakers for the factory owners yeah. during strikes. You know, until eventually smarting up and and taking control of the unions themselves. Marcello, he gets called in, he gives them the old, um, you know, I'm not saying nothing, and RFK at one point allegedly tells some of his team that he's going to eventually get Marcello no matter what. A few years later, of course, his brother is elected president, RFK is appointed attorney general, and his and the government's crusade against the mob really get going, and they're publicly vowing all over to go after the mafia and put an end to it. So Marcello is not a U.S. citizen, and while he has a whole host of lawyers fighting his deportation orders, he still has to make regular routine visits to the immigration offices to maintain his resident alien status. In 1961, Bobby Kennedy has the feds essentially kidnap him and put him on a plane before allowing him to talk to his family or lawyers. This is also made possible by the CIA, who's, you know, doing CIA things to have the Guatemalan authorities even allow this. They fly him to Guatemala... Why Guatemala? Because Marcelo had used a fake Guatemalan birth certificate for one of his schemes to avoid deportation.
2: Uh, what? <laughs> That's a, this seems like a pretty dumb move on his part there. But I'm down for the movie where Marcelo ends up being a spook for like United Fruits or something. You want to write that one?
1: <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> the US government, they knew it was fake, but they did this anyway. So one of the stories goes that upon arrival in Guatemala, he's driven out to the jungle and left there. And another story goes that he's basically thrown out of the plane over the jungle with a parachute, but none of these appear to be true, which, you know, makes it a, a little less of a, of a good story. But the Washington Post reports that he was arrested upon his arrival in Guatemala and was out of jail in a few days and staying in the fancy hotel. It's a quote from the Post article here. You know, he reportedly told an acquaintance several weeks later, they say I'm a crook, but let me tell you, it cost me $75,000 to stay out of jail here. I don't think that makes the point that you're not a crook. You know? Yeah. I like that makes the point that you are a crook if that's that's what you're saying. So also,
2: this is what, this is the middle of the century and you're spending seventy five thousand US dollars in Guatemala. I mean, what the hell is that in today's cash?
1: Hey man, you know, you you can't be buried with it, you know, you gotta you gotta spend it somewhere. Why not a Guatemalan prison? So for a few weeks we have Marcelo's lawyers arguing in the states that the birth certificate was fake and the deportation was illegal while his lawyers in Guatemala are arguing that the birth certificate is real and please don't kick him out of Guatemala. This lasts for a few weeks until the (laughs) Guatemalan government orders him kicked out of there and he's driven to El Salvador. A few months later, he's somehow back in in the States and no one really knows how he got back in, but the thought is that it was through Honduras and that he caught a fly back from there. Back in the States, Marcelo is, of course, enraged with Bobby Kennedy, while Kennedy himself is looking to turn up the heat to get Marcelo deported yet again. And Kennedy, he orders the FBI office in New Orleans to step up its investigation into Marcello, but the FBI office really does nothing. I feel
2: like this whole thing has taken on a bit of a slapstick element at this point. Like, Where, where is he? What is he doing? Who is he paying? What are they playing at? Um, it seems like the perfect segue if we're about to get into some batshit crazy conspiracy stuff. I don't know if that's where we're going or... You know if that's what you got planned for the rest of the show.
1: Oh, I- that's where we're that's where we're, that's where we're going. Okay, good. <laughs> but even I I'm not a conspiracy I'm not a conspiracy guy, and you know, there's some uh there's some hints here. So Awesome. The FBI is not really doing much. They keep sending reports back to Kennedy along the lines of he isn't involved in any rackets. He's just the tomato salesman, which you know, whenever he was called in front of those committees, that's what he would say. He would plead the fifth and say that he was just a tomato salesman. And they actually did own a tomato canning company. You know, my assumption there is that the FBI was on the take here, but I can't be sure. I've worked on another U.S. mobster story from around that time that talked about how the feds in the 60s in cities like New Orleans and other sort of mid sized cities just didn't really make an effort or care that much. So we've got Marcelo furious at the Kennedys, Kennedy vowing to go after the mob. And a lot of mafiosos just across the country kind of feeling betrayed by JFK because of the why they held belief that he was friendly with mafia bosses and that they helped him get elected. And on November 22nd, 1963, Marcelo's in court. He gets acquitted in his deportation case. And as soon as he leaves the courthouse, he hears the news that JFK, uncle to our next president, just kidding, was assassinated. (laughs) This is, of course, great news for Marcelo because not only does he hate the Kennedys, But Bobby Kennedy, while still Attorney General, just became a lot less powerful, as it was well known, him and Lyndon Johnson were kind of, you know, not buds and didn't see eye to eye. So let's just say, the mafia in general, they weren't really crying over the Kennedy assassination. Okay, so, the mafia-Kennedy hit theories, um, yeah, strap in.
2: Oh, okay, so you really are voting RFK Jr. I mean, we'll get him on the show, for sure.
1: I don't think, I mean, maybe I'd hire him as a personal trainer, but I don't think I'd vote for him for city council, (laughs) even. There's basically a whole lot of different threads and circumstantial evidence in this. And I'm going to go through some of them, but I'll probably end up doing like the Charlie Day mailroom meme. But obviously, the motivation for the mob to go after Kennedy, it's pretty obvious. They were being pursued pretty, pretty stringently. And they legitimately felt betrayed by him. And obviously, they weren't unfamiliar with solving their problems by assassinating people. And they really were extremely powerful back then, you know, close to the height of their powers. So, Lee Harvey Oswald, who killed Kennedy, is actually born in New Orleans, and he lives there for a few years before the family moves to Texas, eventually they come back, and Oswald does his ninth and 10th grade years at school in New Orleans, before the family again moves back to Texas, but he drops out of school, he joins the Marines, and he eventually comes back to New Orleans on April 24th, 1963, seven months before Kennedy's assassination.
2: Wow, okay, so we really are going there, this is the sort of stuff that does huge numbers. I mean, we've got to put out a YouTube video, with Comic Sans, and like, mobsters' faces on the video, and we'll be... I mean, we're going to be doing millions on this stuff, man.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's the plan. I mean, I, the YouTube title's got to be like, "Did this mobster kill?" Kind of like something along those lines, yeah. you know? Five question Will marks? Get, yeah. So we're yeah. This is a, this is a this is um, a con, you know, this is this is a real effort to to get those conspiracy views.
2: Christmas is coming up, guys. Yeah.
1: Okay. So there's this guy Robert Blakely. He's this lawyer who, interestingly enough, is the person who helps put together the RICO Act. He's also a consultant on an organized crime committee that Lyndon Johnson had created and the chief counsel and staff director to the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations from 1977 to 1979, which is a committee that was set up to investigate the killings of JFK and MLK. He wrote the book, The Plot to Kill the President, where he talks about the mob connection to the assassination. And Blakely says that Oswald's uncle, Charles dutz Murrit, was an ex-boxer slash promoter who also was a bookie under the umbrella of the Marcello crime family. And he says that on August 9th, 1963, Oswald was arrested for disturbing the peace by handing out pro-Castro leaflets, and he ends up being bailed out by an individual with close connections to the Marcello organization. A few days after Kennedy's assassinated, Oswald, while being transported to jail, he shot by Jack Ruby, and Jack Ruby was a Dallas nightclub owner, and Dallas was considered Marcello's turf as well as New Orleans, and he himself is alleged to have organized crime ties. Jack Ruby. He's originally from Chicago, and he was an associate of Chicago Outfit, whose boss at the time, Sam Giancana, also hates Kennedy. And Giancana, like Marcello, was a big time national mafia player. Ruby is also alleged to have connections to the Marcelo organization. In the Warren Commission, which was created to investigate who killed JFK, they conclude that Ruby had no significant connection to organized crime. But Blakely brings up his point, and he says that the magic word there used by the commission is significant because he did have some connections. For one, the women he had in the strip club in Dallas, they're on a circuit, and they would also work at the show bar in New Orleans, which was owned by Marcelo, and Marcelo sort of controlled that circuit.
2: Hit the pause button, guys, if you want to like go and grab your pen and paper and maybe a tinfoil hat as well.
1: Overwhelmed by investing? If you're anything like us, the hardest part is getting started. That's why we created the Investing for Beginners podcast.
2: Our goal is to help simplify
1: money so it can work for you. We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k.
2: We'll teach you
1: the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet.
2: Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you.
1: So, what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? I'm Dave Ahern, and I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On uh-huh. the Investing for Beginners podcast. Yeah, I probably could have written this better, but I didn't have time. Now, Ed Becker is a businessman with ties to Marcelo. He had gone to Marcelo's home a few times with Marcelo's nephew to try to get support for a business venture of theirs. And he tells us to the 1977 House Committee. This is from a 1979 Washington Post article, quote, the House staff report continued. It commented that Marcello had made some kind of reference to President Kennedy's being a dog, and Attorney General Robert Kennedy, the dog's tail, and had said, quote, the dog will keep biting you if you only cut off its tail, but that if the dog's head were cut off, the dog would die.
2: I mean, in fairness to Marcello, that is literally true of a dog.
1: I think it's true of a lot of animals, actually. Then we have this guy Eric Reed, he's a mob journalist who said that during the Guatemala deportation incident, Marcelo said in Sicilian, Levarsi na Pitra di La Scarpa, which is take the stone out of my shoe. I guess it's an old Sicilian cry for revenge, and he had said it, you know, against the Kennedy brothers. Reed also says that Marcelo spoke of using a nut to do the job, and Becker backed up Reed's account.
2: I mean, there's a reason these guys use euphemisms, right? I mean, <laughs> Like, he can say, take this stone out of my shoe, but he's not like, shoot the president in the head. So, you know, he's kind of doing a good job, if he did mean it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of want to throw cold water on this a little bit. Um, Marcelo was extremely cautious when he had been that open with like one of his nephew's associates, though. He was pretty angry. And then it's like, why would he take out JFK instead of Bobby? But I guess you could say that, you know, if Bobby was taken out, JFK would come down on them with everything he's got. But it seems a little suspect. and. Finally, before we wrap up the conspiracy portion of this podcast, we have Frank Regano, a longtime lawyer for Santo Traficante, who was the longtime mob boss of Florida, and you know Jimmy Hoffa, who is the mob-affiliated Teamsters president and a big union guy who you guys know was killed uh, later
2: on. Yeah, before before we wrap up the conspiracy portion of the podcast, did you know who Marcelo's son is? It's Doctor Anthony No
1: Fauci, <laughs> that, you know. The pieces are falling into place. So, Regano tells the New York Post and PBS Frontline, this is in 1992, that the Kennedy assassination was a conspiracy between Traficante, Marcelo, and Hoffa, who all famously despised the Kennedys. And he said that Hoffa told Traficante and Marcelo that he wanted Kennedy dead, and that they agreed and said it was an acceptable idea. He also says that Traficante celebrated Kennedy's death and said, our problems are over, I hope Jimmy is happy. And a few weeks later, Marcelo told Regano... Jimmy owes me, and he owes me big. Kennedy went after Hoffa really hard, and he was indicted multiple times and did go to jail at one time. I forgot to mention that above. He was also famously known to despise both the Kennedys. And finally, in a deathbed confession, Traficante, after confessing that the mob did get rid of Hoffa, also said that, quote, Carlos messed up. We should have killed Bobby, not Giovanni. Which. Okay. Yeah. I mean... There we go. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the evidence for the mob killing Kennedy. Which you know, out of all the Kennedy conspiracy theories, I kind of it kind of strikes me as the most plausible. But um, do not email me seven thousand word you know letters with your own theories. But feel free to send them to Sean. That's S E A N Williams at gmail.com. Thank you
2: very much. Yeah. Um- <laughs> I mean, I think I think we've put the whole Jimmy Hoffa thing to bed. I can't. I don't think there's going to be any more podcasts on him for a while. I can't wait for your next episode on Princess Diana.
1: Yeah, but back to Marcelo. Kennedy's dead. At this point, things are looking up for him. His arch nemesis has been to Claude, especially since JFK. Again, like we mentioned, his VP and now president Lyndon Johnson did not see eye to eye with IRFK. According to the Metropolitan Crime Commission in New Orleans. Marcello's organization at this point is making up to $500 million alone, just in illegal gambling operations, and up to $1.1 billion total a year in the 60s, which, I don't know, by the 70s it's estimated $2 billion a year and is considered the largest industry in Louisiana. I don't, I don't know where they pulled these numbers from, but needless to say, he's rich, he's powerful, he's doing good, doing better than, than all of us. The director of that commission, Aaron M. Cohn, he says that besides the gambling money, the cash came from diverse, legitimate interests, including syndicate-controlled bars and taverns, prostitution, professional burglaries and holdups, narcotics, and trafficking in stolen commodities. Through it all, Marcello remains like a pretty down-to-earth guy. He's not too flashy or conspicuous. He shakes hands with random strangers on the street, doesn't really have a lot of bodyguards. But in 1964, we're going back in time a little bit, Carlos gets indicted again, this time for conspiracy to obstruct justice because a juror in his last trial comes forward and says he accepted a bribe to throw the deportation case and is willing to testify because Carlos's people never paid up. But the defense kind of works their magic and is kind of like, well, if he didn't get paid, it's not a bribe. And uh, he gets acquitted yet again the following year. A few months later, the reclusive Carlos goes to Manhattan to dine with some of the big mafiosos there in the city. The police happen to be monitoring it or walking by by coincidence. They arrest everyone. They immediately get bailed out. They return to the restaurant, this time with their lawyers to finish their meal, which is pretty funny. But this little occurrence, it makes all the papers nationally, and it turns the low-key Carlos into an even bigger local celebrity back in New Orleans. So much so that when he gets back to the city, there's a crowd waiting to welcome him, when a guy gets in his way, Carlos punches the guy who turns out being, uh, there's actually a picture of this, but he turns out to be a, a local FBI agent. <laughs> Carlos is arrested for assaulting the FBI agent and, you know federal offense. He gets off the first time on a hung jury, but they get him the second time and his lawyers get the sentence reduced from two years to six months.
2: I mean, I need to know, firstly, how in the actual hell do you get off beating up an FBI agent on a hung jury? And secondly... Who is that lawyer and how can I hire him or her for my forthcoming trial in California, which I still annoyingly I think he, cannot talk about?
1: I think he wasn't uh, identified as a. Uh, he didn't identify himself. I don't know. He probably just paid off a bunch of people. This is a quote <laughs> from, uh, from another article from the Washington Post, which seems to have a lot of Marcelo content. Quote More than 30 leading Louisianans wrote the judge, wrote the trial judge to urge clemency and attest to Marcelo's fine character. The list included a sheriff, a former sheriff, a state legislator, two former state legislators, two former state police commanders, the president of a waterfront labor union, a bank president, two bank vice presidents, a former assistant district attorney, one chief juvenile <laughs> probation officer, which what? A uh, former revenue agent, three insurance agencies, five real estate men, five physicians, a funeral director, and six clergymen. So, you know, he was in bed with nearly everyone and had his share of friends. I mean, this guy,
2: he's changed his name, he's paying the politicians. He's into real estate, never Instagrams his crimes. He's, I mean, he's as close as we've got on this show to a perfect gangster, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you'll see. He, he ends up doing pretty well for himself, despite uh, all the attention he ended up getting after a couple of years. So, yeah, he again starts to appear before Congress during the Select Committee for Assassinations in the late 1970s. Does the whole Stonewalling thing again. I mean, how many fucking committees are there for this guy? But <laughs> after all this publicity... The government really turns up the heat and launches a massive investigation into him with the surveillance and the wiretaps, which up to that point had never really been utilized before with him. In the late 70s, it's really when wiretapping became a major tool against organized crime. The technology had gone a lot better, and RICO being passed, I think at the start of the decade, it allowed for a much more permissive environment when it came to the legal sense of getting permission for these. Also, these guys just weren't as tuned in to the dangers of talking on the phone or getting their offices bugged as, as you know people are now. So the wiretaps on Marcello, they turn up a ton of incriminating shit about corruption and bribery at a major insurance scam that included him paying off political officials, and he gets indicted on a bunch of counts, including trying to help bribe a judge in California. On August 4th, 1981, he's convicted of one count of conspiracy in the insurance trial. Four months later, he's found guilty of three counts related to bribing the federal judge. In April 1983, his appeal is denied for the insurance case, and he heads back to jail at the age of 73. He's in pretty bad health at this point, and he has multiple strokes and early-onset Alzheimer's, and his reign is is over as boss. In 1989, his conspiracy charge actually gets overturned on a technicality, and he's released from jail to spend the last few years of his life at home, and he dies four years later in 1993 at age 83, which is, you know, not a bad run, all things considered, Uh so... He leaves behind four kids, one son and three daughters. None appear to be involved in organized crime. Recently in 2016, his son Joseph was in one of the local New Orleans papers as selling 1000 acres in Jefferson Parish for 13.5 million. So in the article it mentions that the Marcello family is one of the largest landowners in Jefferson Parish and has been pretty active in selling and donating land in the last few years. So, you know, all in all, a pretty good mafia career for Marcello. Does a few years at the start of his life, a few years at the end of his life maybe kills a president, and he invests in enough <laughs> legitimate things that his family seems to still be pretty wealthy today. And that's kind of, you know, it's all you can ask for.
2: Yeah, and if there's any lesson you can take away from this show, it's that. Um, oh, that and do your own research, obviously.
1: Yeah, d- uh, definitely spend the next couple months getting deep into the weeds with Kennedy assassination theories. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it from us. As always, Patreon, iTunes, And uh, next week, Sean will have some really weird stuff he's going to get into.
2: Oh, yeah.